Thank you, Josh, for leading us in that wonderful time of worship. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're finishing up chapter 1 today. And so as you turn there, I want to remind you that 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth to basically address a number of issues that he heard were plaguing this this young congregation. And and right away in verse 10, the apostle starts to tackle issues, and he's tackling issue number one, the issue of division. This is why we have called this first segment of our series through 1 Corinthians undivided, because that's Paul's vision for these people, that the gospel— will make them undivided, that the gospel will create unity amongst them. Last week, pastors Paul and Bethany looked at verses 10 through 17, where they talked about the divisions over personalities, people dividing amongst different teachers and different leaders. I'm of Paul, verse 12 says. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. And Paul is simply saying to them, do not jockey for status or position based on who you follow. It's not the way of God's people. And this week, Paul will continue the conversation about division. This week, we pick up the letter in verse 18, and we're going to talk about division over worldly philosophies. Divisions that happen in the church when when worldly ideas, when worldly thoughts and concepts and ways of thinking begin to define us along with the gospel. And friends, I, I may say this every single week throughout our journey in 1 Corinthians. I, I feel like I have so far. But this week is oh so relevant to us. It's so important for us in our world today to hear this message. And so I'll back up and I'll begin in verse 17 to kind of give us a little bit of a run-up into our, our section this morning. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, this is Paul talking, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, the Greeks loved their philosophy. I mean, Greek philosophy, that was where it was at. They adored their philosophy. And the word philosophy is the word Sophia. And really, it just simply means this, man's wisdom, human wisdom. It's used 16 times throughout this section where Paul is talking. 16 times Paul is talking about this temptation for these Christ followers to latch themselves onto human, earthly, worldly wisdom. And this was a big temptation in the early world because in the first century in Greece, there were at least 50 major worldly philosophies. A lot of different worldly Ideas and isms going around, a lot of different worldviews, a lot of different ideas about life that people had attached themselves to. They were rampant in this culture. And the place where most of these philosophies was discussed and debated was just north of the city of Corinth in the city of Athens. 
Some of you have heard of the very famous place in Athens called Mars Hill, where all the the philosophers would go to talk about and discuss and debate all of their worldly ideas. Paul himself had been there. He talked with these folks. And in the Greek culture, what made a philosophy substantial, what made it significant, what made it appealing, what gave it credibility was its elegance and its complexity. If it was elegant and if it was complex, then it was probably worth something. If you were smart, if you had to be really smart to understand a philosophy, if it was expressed with fancy and dignified words, then then the status of that philosophy, then that philosophy's street cred would start to go up. And what's happening in the church in Corinth is that all these philosophies from Athens are kind of filtering down south to this city and into this church. And these young Christians are embracing the gospel and. The gospel and. The gospel and their Sophia, their worldly philosophy of choice. And the idea behind this was that for them, the gospel seemingly was just not enough. The gospel wasn't eloquent, elegant enough or complex enough to be taken seriously when just standing on its own. And so these young Christ followers were taking the gospel and some worldly wisdom to make their own version of Christianity, to sort of spice it up, to soup it up, to make it more acceptable. And, and then this approach, of course, started to, take, to, started to create divisions the Christians plus Sophia A, world philosophy A, were dividing from Christians plus Sophia B, who were ridiculing the Christians who had adopted Sophia or worldly philosophy C. And they all started to splinter and the church was starting to divide. Now, I know this is hard for us to understand because we would never in our world be tempted to divide up into things like Republican Christians and Democrat Christians, mask-wearing Christians and anti-mask-wearing Christians, liberal Christians, conservative Christians, progressive Christians, moderate Christians, Calvinist Christians, Arminian Christians, critical race theory Christians, nationalistic, patriotic Christians, capitalist Christians, socialist Christians. Ooh, Pastor Dave, now you're getting on thin ice. Friends, Paul is going to challenge these Christians today and he's going to challenge you and me to reject the gospel and Christianity. He's going to say, Be real careful about allowing anything other than the cross, any other Sophia to define your identity as a follower of Jesus and divide the body of Christ. I think this message might be relevant for us. I think it is. And to do this, to to challenge this gospel and way of following the Lord, Paul's going to talk about four things today. He's going to talk about the simplicity of, of the gospel message, the power of the gospel message, the people of the gospel message, and the response to the gospel message. The first two are going to be kind of woven together, and the second two are going to be kind of woven together. So pay attention and follow with me. Paul starts off today by saying, I came 
to you. I came to preach the gospel. Not in a way that's complicated. Not in a way that's chic or, or dignified. I don't need to, to soup up or tune up or brush up, brush up this message in any way. Friends, the gospel doesn't, did not need Paul to make it better and it does not need you or me to make it better. It is good enough all on its own. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, do you know what the word foolishness is there? It's the Greek word moria. Moria. It's where we get our English word moron. I've always wanted to use the word moron in church. It's a word from my childhood. It's a word from like my later elementary school years. And Paul says this, the gospel sounds moronic to those who don't know Jesus. It's foolishness. It sounds crazy. Friends, I love the way he just owns it. I love the way Paul just owns this because it's true. Until you receive the gospel, until the Holy Spirit aligns your heart and mind and affections with the truth, the gospel seems crazy. Shoot, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I love the gospel. I've preached the gospel. I've tried to live and embody the gospel. But sometimes, even when I'm preaching, I think to myself, man, this is an awfully strange story. In fact, I was reading an author this week who said, just imagine the gospel in modern terms. I mean, seriously, just think about it for a second. Step back from it for just a moment and imagine it in modern terms. Someone knocks on your door, knock, 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 you know, hey, how are you? How can I help you? I'm here to tell you about God. Great. I'd love to hear about God. Tell me about God. Well, there's this girl from Pendleton, Oregon. Uh, she went to Pendleton High. She got pregnant. Uh, did I mention she was a virgin? She was a virgin when she got pregnant. Um, she had the kid. He was uh, actually God come to earth. God is the one who impregnated the girl. So it's God now on earth as a kid. And he grew up in relative, you know, kind of obscurity. He didn't have any sort of formal education. Eventually, in you know, his early 30s, he moves to Portland. He lived in a tent. He hung out with all the wrong people. He did some cool stuff, some pretty miraculous stuff, shared some amazing teaching. But eventually, he got his wires crossed with the authorities. They arrested him. They beat him. They killed him. But then, three days later, he rose from the grave, appeared to some people, and then ascended into heaven. Can I interest you in a brochure? And you're like, no, I'm good. Thanks for coming by. Don't need the brochure. Friends, Paul just owns this. He's not trying to hide the fact that the story of Jesus is a little crazy. He doesn't try to make it cool. He doesn't try to make it relevant. He's not out to make it less strange. And here's why. Because Paul knows this. This strange, simple story, when believed and received, offers the power of almighty God to humanity and to you and me. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29. And by using this quote, Paul is referencing the story that was happening when Isaiah said this. Here's the story. 
There was a king, his name was Sennacherib, and he ruled the nation and the world empire of Assyria. And in this story, Sennacherib, who had a huge army, comes to overthrow and take over and conquer Judah. But God tells Judah this. He says, don't worry. Deliverance will come. Sennacherib will fail in his conquering efforts on you. But it won't be because of your human wisdom. It won't be because of your political or diplomatic or military strategies. You will not escape the hand of the Assyrians because of your cleverness, but because of my simple and sovereign power. And friends, that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian army comes 185,000 soldiers strong, And Judah is in a world of hurt. They are in big trouble. They are going down. And so what does God do? He sends one angel. One angel. And he wipes them all out. 185,000. You see, what they could not accomplish on their own with all their planning and thinking and preparing and strategizing, God unbelievably did in a simple, sovereign powerful way. See, Paul is telling us something here about the gospel. It is simple and yet it is powerful. It does not need human wisdom or human strength to accomplish what it came to accomplish. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Look real quick with me at verse 20, the second question. It's pretty cool. Where is the teacher of the law? A better translation is in the ESV. It says, where is the scribe? Where is the scribe? Because when the Assyrians attacked a city, they would bring scribes. And a scribe's job was to write down all of the things that they took when the city was overthrown. They were to record all the loot. They were to write down all the booty. Not this kind of booty, the the, the treasure kind of booty. That's awkward in church. But after the Assyrians attacked Israel, what did the scribes have to record? What did they have to show for their efforts? Nothing. In the end, the Assyrians got nothing. And Paul is saying this, just like the Assyrian army and your Sophia, your human wisdom and theories and ideas might seem big and powerful and impressive, in the end, they will not get the job done. They will not work. Where is the philosopher of this age, he asks Paul here is sort of zeroing in on these Greek philosophers. And he's saying this, they sound so smart. It sounds like such good, sophisticated stuff. It tickles your ears. It tickles your brain cells. But in the end, it will not save you. It will not offer you and give you what you need. An illustration that comes to mind for me is the Titanic. You remember the scene And the Titanic, where they're boarding the boat, and people are boarding, and they're walking around the deck of the boat, and they're counting the lifeboats, and there aren't enough lifeboats on board for all the people. Why? Because human wisdom said, we don't need those. 
We don't need those lifeboats. This ship is unsinkable. Our ideas and theories and policies and philosophies, they will keep us safe. Paul here says, the wise messages of the world will be revealed as foolish, while the foolish message of the gospel will at some point, when you need it most, be understood as amazingly wise. There's a warning here. Do not rely on human wisdom to give you what in the end it will not give. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, the Jews said, we need something miraculous. We need something majestic, impress us. How many times in the Gospels do the religious leaders say to Jesus, prove it, Jesus, prove that you're the Son of God. Do a miracle, do something cool for us. And Jesus did, I mean, he did a lot of miracles. We read the Gospels, a lot of miracles. I think of the blind man in the Gospel of John. For an entire paragraph, that story is told. And he's given his sight. He's blind, and now he can see. And still the Pharisees won't believe it. They won't believe in Christ. They go to the blind guy. You're not the guy, are you? You're not the right guy. You're not the same guy. You can't be the guy. And after he says, I'm the guy, they grab his parents and they go, is, is that kid the guy? Is that your son? Is that, your, is that him? Friends, people who don't believe will always find a way of explaining the power of God away. Furthermore, the Jews said this, hey, this, is, this whole gospel thing is craziness, it's foolishness. Why? Because we know what will happen with our Messiah. We know who our Messiah will be. He will come in power. He will deliver us from oppression. He will overthrow the Romans and sit on the throne of David and bring an earthly empire that will be the envy of the entire world. And now you're telling me that the good news is that the Messiah came and not only did he not defeat the Romans, but they killed him? They crucified him? That's the message? That's silly. That's crazy. That's a stumbling block. That is something that we cannot accept. That's the Jews. And then, and then there's the Greeks. And the Greeks held two basic tenets of philosophy. Two basic tenets that made a philosophy significant. One, they believed this. God was apathetic. That, that he was indifferent to man. That's who they believed God to be. Um, two, they believed that everything had to be complex. That if you could figure out a philosophy, that it probably wasn't true. If the average person could easily understand it, then it really wasn't any good. And then here comes Paul, and they're like, A, your God cares about humanity. B, he cares about humanity so much that he became a human, and he gave his life for mankind. Then he rose from the dead, defeating death once and for all, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's the whole philosophy. That's too simple. It's got to have some twists, some turns, some sidebars, some intricacies to it. That's the whole deal. 
No way. Too simple. That is foolishness. You see, the gospel is rejected by both groups. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Church, tells the story of walking down the street one day before he had given his life to Christ. And on the corner up ahead, he saw a street preacher. And this street preacher was holding a sign. And the sign read, Fool for Christ. And Wimber says that he remembers in his mind, in his heart, just ridiculing this man and despising this guy as he went past. Didn't say anything, but just in his heart and in his mind and soul, he's just like bashing this guy. Who could believe that junk? Who could give their life for something so utterly and completely silly? But then on the way back from where Wimber was headed, he was walking past the preacher again, this time from the other direction, And he had the chance to read what was written on the other side of the sign. It said, not fool for Christ, but whose fool are you? And it shook him. It rocked him. It caused him to start asking lots of questions because, friends, we are all living for something. We are all giving our, ourselves and our lives and our allegiance to something in this world. We are all buying into some worldview, some idea, some philosophy, some ism. We are all counting on that thing, on that something to save us and fill us and give us meaning and purpose and satisfaction and salvation. And the question really is, are you banking on the right thing? Paul is saying here, There's a lot of worldly philosophy out there, a lot of human ideas, and they seem like wisdom. They are complicated and intricate and elaborate and eloquent. They seem powerful, just like Sennacherib's army, but in the end, they won't work. They cannot save your soul. They cannot redeem your heart. They can't offer lasting peace and true joy and eternal life. They will fail you. Friends, the gospel is simple but it's powerful. Paul calls it Christ crucified. He says, we preach Christ crucified. It's just a simple gospel. It's a gospel that says God came to earth, died on a cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that you and I might be made right with him. Then three days later, Jesus defeated death once and for all. That now, and now, because of his victory, you and I can live forever, eternally with our God, our Father in heaven. See, it's not complicated. It's simple, but it's powerful. The foolish, most simple, easy to understand thing from God is immensely more powerful than any theory or idea or philosophy this world will ever hand you. And this gift of salvation can be yours if you just believe it. If you just trust in it. If you just have faith. It's simple. Now friends, there is a difference between the gospel and the implications of the gospel. The implications of the gospel are vast. The implications of the gospel are on you and me, are enormous. The way we live and speak and think and act will be radically and significantly changed when the gospel takes root in our hearts. The implications of the gospel are huge, but the gospel is simple. 
Verse 26. Brothers and sisters. So Paul's just talked to them about the gospel. It's simplicity and it's power. And now he's going to speak to them. Brothers and sisters. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, because the gospel is so simple and because it's God's power, anyone can get in. It is available to all. Paul is reminding us here that to be a Christian, you don't have to be significant. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be scholarly. You see, there was a temptation for these Corinthian Christians, and I think for you and me, to have a better than attitude. To take what Paul says in the paragraph before and say, yeah, all those people in the world that reject the gospel, I mean, what are they thinking? They think their philosophies are so smart, but they're really just dumb. They have bought into a lie. They think they're smart, and yet they are fools. Not me. I'm no fool. I'm a Christian. I believed it. I mean, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Thank you, Stuart Smalley. I'm so spiritual. I'm so tuned in that I chose God. I picked the winning team. I must be someone. And Paul says here, hold up. Slam on the brakes. Stop the train. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you were. Remember whose power it was that saved you. In one of my favorite movies, Hoosiers, it's a movie about a small town Indiana basketball team that makes it all the way to to the state basketball finals. And There's a scene, it's the game right before the final game. It's the game to make it to the championship game. And at the end of that game, the team gets in foul trouble and they have to put in their last and their decidedly worst player. Uh, Just a little guy by the name of Ollie. And Ollie was ultimately just the team manager. Um, He suited up for the games because they didn't have a lot of guys, but he was really just the team manager. All he couldn't dribble, he couldn't pass, all he couldn't shoot. He even took his foul shots underhanded because he wasn't strong enough to get the ball to the rim shooting overhand. Well, in the final seconds of this game, this game that gets the team to the championship game, in the final seconds of this game, Ollie's in now because of foul trouble, and he gets fouled. The team is losing by one point. Ali has two free throws, and if he misses, they will certainly lose. He has to make two free throws in a row. And before Ali goes up to the free throw line to shoot his shots, before the vast crowd and everyone jeering and looking and watching at him and hollering, 
You look at Ollie's face and you can tell he is absolutely terrified. The look on his face says, this is the last place I ever want to be. I do not belong here at all. Ollie is panicked. But then, by a sheer miracle, Ollie hoists up shot number one and hits the rim and drops in. So now Ollie's made one free throw. Then the ball is handed to him for shot number two, and Ollie thinks, and he looks at the basket, and he, underhand again, hoists up shot number two, and it bounces around on the rim, and then guess what? Yes, you're right. It falls in the basket, and his team wins. It's a huge, heroic moment. And then, and my favorite part of that entire scene is it clips later, to this moment where the team is getting ready to play in the championship game. And there's this news reporter, this sportscaster, who's interviewing Ollie. And he's talking to him. And you can see them talking. And, and then you catch this audio. And Ollie just looks at the sportscaster and says, yeah, I knew I had it the whole time. And just as he says that, the coach, who's played by Gene Hackman, walks up and puts his arm around him and says, really? And just sort of escorts him off. But I knew I had it the whole time. Friends, Paul in this last section is saying to you and me, don't be an Ollie. Don't, don't be a spiritual Ollie. Don't forget who you were when God reached down into this wor- world, grabbed you by the scruff of your neck, and saved you. Don't forget that it wasn't your intelligence. Don't forget that it wasn't your sophistication. Don't forget that it wasn't your sanctity or your morality or your religiosity. God says, do not forget that when I picked you for my team, it wasn't because of who you were and what you brought to the table. It's because I called you by my grace. Love and acceptance and forgiveness that was completely and 100% undeserved. Listen to the words from this paragraph, the words that are used to describe you and me. These words describe us. Paul says this. He says, you were not wise. You were not influential. You were not of noble birth. You were foolish. You were weak. You were lowly. You were despised. In other words, there was nothing deserving about you. If that doesn't kill your arrogance, if that doesn't kill your desire to jockey and put yourself above other people in this world. I do not know what will. Paul is reminding them of this because he does not want them. It's not like Paul's saying, Hey, I want you to know you're the worst. You're the terrible person. Walk around sad and depressed like Eeyore. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, I want you all to be depressed. He's not saying, I want you all to think of yourselves as like lowlifes. No, no, no. Not at all. Actually, quite the opposite. Paul says, I want you to stand tall. Paul says, I I want you to have supreme confidence. He says, I want you to boast. Just make sure you boast in Jesus. A few years ago, I, I preached a sermon about a word. It's one of my favorite words. It's a, it's a word that's used throughout the entire Old Testament when we're commanded to worship. It's a worship word. It's, it's a word about, about song. It's a word about praise. It's a word about adoration for our God that comes off of our lips. And the word I'm talking about here is the Hebrew word, hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's such a fun word. Just say it with me, even right at home on your couch. Hallelujah. 
Yeah, it helps me preach. I wish people in this worship center, when we're live and back together, would say hallelujah when I'm preaching. But that's beside the point. Here's what's interesting about the word hallelujah. It's actually a word that's made up of two words. It's a compound word of two Hebrew words sort of mashed together. And the first word is the word halal. And the word halal means to boast. It means to glory in something. It means to be proud of something. It means to take your boast in it, to say, this is what I'm most proud of in my life. This is what I would brag about if I was going to brag. That's the word halal. The second word is the word Yahweh. Hallelujah. Halal Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. And so hallelujah means put your boast in Yahweh. See, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church here, friends, and to you and me is this. In response to what God has done for you, worship. In response to the simple, powerful, undeserved message of the gospel that's been given to you by Jesus Christ, worship. Put your boast in God. Brag about not yourself, not about your gifts, not about your abilities, not about your accomplishments, but brag and boast and have confidence in what God has done for you and is doing in you. Declare with your mouth and live with your life in a way that says, the reason I'm somebody, the reason I'm saved, the reason I'm righteous and holy and redeemed is not because of something I've done or accomplished or even understood. It's because of him. It's because of God, verse 30, that you are in Christ. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. Friends, this is such a crucial message for the church today that we must not be divided by otherworldly philosophies, theories, ideas, that we must not allow those things to define us instead of the gospel, that we must not even put on equal footing with the gospel, otherworldly thinking. The gospel is so much more significant, so much more powerful, that we must allow it and it alone, Christ crucified, to define who we are. And then, after that gospel takes root in us, to allow it to help us to live the lives we were called to live. So let me review, and then I'll let you go. Friends, the gospel is a simple message. Christ crucified, Christ risen. The gospel is a powerful message. It has the power to save and redeem and restore every single inch of this fallen, broken world and every single inch of your soul. Believe it. Receive it. Trust in it. Choose faith. And friends, we are people of that message, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. We must never, ever forget that. And finally, our response to this simple, powerful good news is that we will boast. We will brag. We will shout it from the mountaintops. Our God has saved and redeemed us. 